Welcome back to JCM Prepare the Way. My name is Carol, and I just want to thank you all for tuning back in again to our series on Revelation. And wherever you're listening in the world, welcome. We are so grateful that you are on this journey with us. Today is episode five. We're continuing our journey through the seven churches, which we believe to be incredibly important. And today is the letter to the church of Pergamon, or Pergamus, your Bible might say. You know, different pressures toward a church produce different outcomes. And the church of Smyrna, which we covered in the last episode, experienced outside pressures. They were being afflicted financially and through slander. But it was precisely those pressures that refined them and made them stronger. But Pergamon faced something different. It was an inside job. Deception and immorality had seeped into this little house church and they were being corrupted from the inside out. The letter to the church of Pergamon addressed things that I believe many churches today are still struggling with, but a lot of them can't see it, or maybe they don't want to see it. It took Jesus himself to expose the sin in this church, and my prayer is that he does it in the modern church. You know, if he's coming for a pure bride, we have all got some cleaning up to do. Well, this letter to the church in Pergamon addresses some very important things. And we're going to read the letter in a few minutes, but we're going to talk about a few other things first. But in this letter, we see a reminder of who Jesus is. He's the word. And not just that, but he has all power and all authority. But we also understand that Pergamon is the place of Satan's hideout. Jesus reveals that this is where his throne is. This letter also reveals to us, again, that deception and immorality had crept into this small church, and he gives an urgent command for them to repent and change. So let's try to get a better understanding of what is going on here. You know, if there was one place you wanted to go to encounter the heart of pagan worship, it was Pergamon. It was a city that was perched on top of a steep mountain only 48 miles north of Smyrna, and it held a commanding presence that it overlooked the Aegean Sea, but also the valley below. And it was considered a great city of its time. And there were two parts to it. A lot of people don't realize that. You had Upper Pergamon, that was an Acropolis, a high city. And then you had Lower Pergamon, which was called Asclepios which was over the centuries became one of the best known healing centers of the ancient world, second in importance only to Epidaurus in Greece. Well, where Smyrna was considered the great commercial center, remember it had all those beautiful structures, Pergamon was created the, uh, considered the great religious center. Actually, religion and politics were very intertwined here. When Alexander the Great died in 323 BC, his generals divided the territory he had conquered, which included this area, resulting in a power struggle between them. Well, around this time, Pergamon was little more than a little hilltop fortress with a settlement on top. But eventually, it became an important place over the centuries. And during the Roman Empire, it became a major center for Greek culture. They allied themselves very early with Rome when Rome was on the rise and as a result, became an extremely wealthy and prosperous city, and ultimately became the official capital of the Roman province of Asia for 200 years. 
But because they did not have the proximity to the main trade routes, which we've talked about, they eventually yielded that leadership to Ephesus. We discussed Ephesus being second in importance to Rome during that episode. Well, this is how that came to be. So you've got upper and you've got lower Pergamon. And the oldest and arguably the most beautiful section of Pergamon is the upper. And it was accessed by a single road that took you straight up to the top. Well, the Acropolis of Pergamon, it rose up over the city and looked down the steep slopes to the valley below. And it was truly majestic. As this is where you had the temples of Athena, you had the temple to Dionysus, but you also had the massive temple to Zeus. All of that is sitting on the top of this mountain. Can you imagine? But also up there was a library, a very important and famous library. It was the third largest library in the ancient world. And it contained one of the largest collections of written material from the ancient world. And therefore, it was famous throughout all of the Mediterranean. It had, and this this is mind-boggling to me, but it had an estimated 200,000 documents of both papyrus and parchment. Boy, wouldn't you love just to be in there at that period of time just to see what what they were holding on to? That's an impressive amount. And it's estimated that about 40,000 volumes of material were actually cataloged and placed in the larger library in Alexandria. So I'm sure knowledge was worshipped alongside all of these other um, gods and goddesses of the Pantheon. But you also had the Pergamon Theater. Remember, we're talking about many replicas of Rome. You also had the Pergamon Theater, which I really encourage you to look up because it's built on the side of the mountain. It literally cascades down this steep slope very sharply, and it comes down from the Acropolis. It is one of the steepest theaters of its kind that was ever built. In fact, if a visitor fell, it would be 120 vertical feet dropped to the stage below. I mean, (laughs) I don't know if I'd really want to watch anything there. But anyway, the whole point is, This is a big, thriving area on top of this mountain. We're just trying to give you a visual. Well, the people of Pergamon, what were they like? Well, they were known as the temple keepers, especially for this massive temple of Zeus, the king of the Greek gods. And this was the most dramatic structure that was up there. It was enormous. The the massive foundations of this temple, they're located on the southern slope of the mountain today and they have they're marked by three trees up there that massive foundation is still there so you can go up there today and see the foundation of this temple of Zeus but at the time it was a quite a menacing structure and it was built on the slope or the edge of this mountain and so it had the appearance that it would loom out over the mountain and it was shaped something like a big cozy armchair And in the middle of the armchair would have been a square structure, which would have been the actual altar. But one of the most noticeable things about this altar was the fire, a fire that temple priests were required to keep burning perpetually. And so the smoke from this perpetual fire would rise into the sky every single solitary day and night. Now imagine for a moment, if you lived below or in a neighboring little town, remember they're just a few miles apart from each other, And every morning you wake up and step outside your door and you look up to this intimidating 
temple that's hovering literally almost over you as if it's going to fall on top of you. But imagine the smoke or the smell and this, that whole overall environment. You know, it was a, it was a bustling city of idolatry, had the worship of knowledge. And this is your life every day. And this is the environment where you are to bring the gospel. So just keep that in mind. But it wasn't only upper Pergamon that posed such an intimidating atmosphere. You had lower Pergamon, which was filled with its own form of worship, the worship of the god Asclepios, which is why it was called that. It came about from the cult of the Greek hero Asclepios, who was the god of medicine. And it is said to be the son of the god Apollo. And it was introduced, this whole god of Asclepios was introduced to Pergamon in the 4th century B.C., And this cult spread widely through Asia Minor, especially during the Roman Empire, because where you have wealth, remember this is a wealthy area, there's a focus on health. And that's true even today. People who have wealth will have a personal trainer, we can afford cosmetic surgery, their special diets and foods, so on and so forth. So health and healing were very important to the people in Pergamon, so important to them that they literally built their city around the hospital. They also had a spring that ran through there that's still there today that was considered sacred and possessing miraculous healing properties. And so it was a whole a whole entire environment down there. But there was one thing in particular that stood out even more than those two places. They had a therapeutic ritual, which was a mixture of the supernatural mystical with the practical. And so what happened was invalids from all parts of Asia would flock to the temple of Asclepios and there, while they were sleeping in the court, it was believed that the god Asclepios would visit and reveal to the priest and physician by means of dreams the remedies which were necessary to heal their maladies. And this was big business. So you can see how the opportunities of deception were numerous. And I find it interesting that one of the things this church was struggling with was being deceived. Imagine being among these people called to plant a church here. Talk about having your work cut out for you. And we think sharing the gospel today is hard. I mean, come on. This region of the world It wasn't just important to Jesus either, him writing these letters to these churches and no other, right? But Satan too considered this area of the utmost importance, so much so that he set up his headquarters here, in the high place, on the Acropolis of Pergamon. So let's read the letter to Pergamon or Pergamus together. Revelation 2, verses 12 through 17. And to the angel of the church in Pergamus write, These things says he who has a sharp two-edged sword. I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. 
Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. I will also give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. Well, there's a lot in there. But one of the things I find right off the bat is that Jesus identifies himself in this letter as he who has the sharp two-edged sword. Jesus has definitely given us a different picture of himself, isn't he? He's not as a baby in a manger here, but he is one that has a sword. So we must ask ourselves, what message is he trying to send this church and us today? And what kind of sword is he talking about? Well, since this letter is taking place at the time of the Roman Empire, perhaps we get a better understanding of the type of swords soldiers would have used at the time as the people receiving this letter would have more than likely had a good visual of what a two-edged sword was. You know, the Roman soldiers, um, I think a lot of us can pretty much know this or assume this, they were greatly known for their strong, brutal, and effective ways on how they did battle, but especially on how they used a sword. They had many forms of weaponry, but there were two common swords in particular that they used. One was called a Roman spatha sword or spatha sword, which was straight and long and the primary sword of the Roman cavalry. It was also the same type of sword you would have seen used in gladiator games. Just looks like a regular sword. The Roman sword, though, that really conquered all was the short sword called the Roman gladius. The short sword had a 20-inch double-edged blade with a diamond tip and became known as the sword that conquered the world because it was used for stabbing and slashing all the way to joint and marrow. And this shorter length sword, what it did was it allowed a soldier to step inside an enemy's guard and literally thrust the sword in any direction at a deadly pace. And this would not be possible with a long sword. And so this is where they held the upper hand. And it was the primary sword of foot soldiers. And this is how Jesus is identifying himself. These things says he who has a sharp two-edged sword. The people of this church would probably have pictured this Roman gladius sword. But what he's letting the church know is that he too has a deadly weapon one that can step inside the enemy's guard and move at a deadly pace, only piercing not just to the division of joint and marrow, but soul and spirit, to the visible and the invisible. Jesus is going to get to the root of the issue in this church, and it's spiritual. And only his word, which is sharper than a two-edged sword, Hebrews 4, can cut out the cancer That's plaguing this church. It's the only thing sharp enough to deal with it. See, his word gets to the heart of every matter. It discerns the thoughts and intents of the heart. That's why we need solid preaching of the word in our churches today. It's not a bad thing to sit in a chair and wrestle through the word. Because when you hear true biblical preaching, you squirm, right? We wrestle. 
because we're feeling that cut. It's discerning the thoughts and intents of our own heart. It's cutting to the heart of the matter. And that's what he's going to do to the church. They're being corrupted from the inside out. And he is addressing them as the one who has the authority over this whole situation, including Satan himself. You know, in the opening of John's gospel, John identifies Jesus as what? The Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, right? Jesus is called the Word, and the Spirit-breathed words of the Scriptures are also called the Word. They're the words of the Godhead. Therefore, the words you read and study and speak from the Holy Scriptures, they are powerful. They act as the word over everything because they are the words of heaven. They are the words of our ruler, King Jesus. And they have power over everything, visible and invisible. That's why I pray the word. That's why our ministry teaches people how to pray the word. That's why it's important to study the word. The word of God supersedes everything else that's out there. All deceptions, all lies, all spirits. What happened when the word of God was spoken in any time in scripture? Well, he created or he destroyed. His words can uplift. His words convict. His words heal. His words cast out demons. His words saves. His word judges. Therefore, his words are sharp. They cut. That's why a lot of people don't like the truth from scripture today. It cuts. We want to feel good. And the word of God convicts us. Some of us don't like that because his word will discern what's in our hearts. Well, that's what he's going to do with this church. He's going to discern what's in their hearts. His word is sharper and more powerful than a two-edged sword. Hebrews 4, it pierces to the division of soul and spirit and joint and marrow, which is only as far as the Roman sword would go, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from its sight. All things, scripture says, are naked and exposed to the word whom they must give an account. So Jesus means business. He is poisoning himself in this letter as the one who has the greater weapon himself. But then he says something interesting. He says, I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. One thing I find interesting about this letter is that Jesus is not going to give this church a way of escape from their environment. He's not going to say to them, I understand where you live and that as a Christian, you're finding yourself in the minority or that Things are getting a little expensive, or you don't like the leadership right now, or you can't stand your boss, or you don't like your governor, or you don't like your president. No, he says nothing of the sort. In fact, he commands them to stay accountable in this letter, despite where they live. And what is this church facing? Satan himself. You think you got it bad. Satan has found himself a throne in a city in Asia Minor, Pergamon. On one side, you had this beautiful city, but on the other side, it was one of the darkest cities of the Roman Empire. And according to Jesus, Satan had his throne there. 
Now that word throne was used to describe a chair that was used in a personal private residence. That word throne, when you're talking about a chair in a private residence, it's reserved for the Lord of the house, the master of the house. The very fact that Jesus chose this word to use in this verse means that Satan felt at home there. It was his throne, his territory, his home for the time being. Let me remind you out there, Satan's a fallen angel. He is not omnipresent. He cannot be everywhere at once. He can roam about and even has to check in with the Lord as Job chapter 1 confirms. But on earth, he needs a base. He needs a headquarters. Even though he has his agents everywhere, demonic agents to go and do his will. But he can only be in one place at a time. And this was his place. A high place. You know, his headquarters are always high on a mountain. The devil likes high places. That's why high places are popular places for pagan worship. That's why they're popular for rituals and sacrifices. That's why they're popular even today for covens and Wicca practices. When he is high, he cannot just, it's not just looking down on people. He can survey his kingdom from that vantage point. Remember, it was a high place that the devil took Jesus to show him the kingdoms of the earth that could be his, right? And so we know from Jesus' letter here that at this present time, Satan had his headquarters in Pergamon. And Jesus specifically says to the people of this church, I know where you live, where Satan resides. It's where he has his seat, his throne. And this would affect the churches that were near to this throne in a different way than the churches that were further away, as I've mentioned. The influence of dark spirits would have been tangibly felt, as I imagine Satan's demonic agents would have had to check in with headquarters from time to time, don't you think? Can you imagine the spiritual activity in this city? And the churches that struggled the most were closest to Pergamon, those that were nearest to Satan's presence. Outside pressures, like I said, on a church make a church faithful and strong, even if they lose everything. But corruption from the inside was destroying the churches in Pergamon and, as you'll see later, Thyatira. They sat under Satan's shadow. And the third closest, Sardis, was even dying. So Satan needs a base, and it has been this way throughout time. Where is his base now? Well, no one knows. But I believe if we look at the situation in Pergamon, we could probably make a few guesses if we looked at the world today. Then the letter says, And you hold fast to my name, and did not deny my faith even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. You know, when Christianity came to this place, the pagan priests went on the attack, and their most famous victim was a man named Antipas, whom Jesus calls his faithful martyr. He was the bishop of Pergamon, ordained by the apostle John, trained under John, and his faith got the attention of the priests of Asclepios who complained to the Roman governor. 
The priest testified that demons appeared to them in their dreams and told them that the prayers of Antipas were driving them out of the city. He had cast out so many devils that the pagan priests were complaining. Can you imagine? Antipas was ordered to offer a sacrifice of wine and incense to the statue of the Roman emperor and then declare that the emperor was Lord and God. Well, guess what? He refused. And he was sentenced to death on the altar of Zeus. How he died is so emotional to me. At the top of the altar was a hollow bronze bowl designed for human sacrifice. They would take the victim, place him inside of the bowl, and tie him in such a way that his head would go into the head of the bowl. Then light a huge fire under the bowl. And as the fire heated up, the person inside the bowl would slowly begin to roast to death. And as the person would moan and cry out in pain, their sound would go through the piping found in the head of the bowl, so it seemed to make the bowl come alive. How twisted, how twisted do you have to be in humanity to even create something so evil? But even in the midst of the flames, Antipas died praying for his church. And here, a few years later, John wrote Revelation, mentioning the death of Antipas on this very spot. And he held fast to Christ's name, despite this evil, despite this torturous death. Can we say we would do the same? Is your faith in a place that if your life depended on it, you wouldn't deny him in order to survive? We may not have to make that choice at the moment, but we make that choice every day, whether or not we choose to come out from among the systems of the world to live righteously, right? Some of us want to be saved, but never repent, meaning we don't want to change our lives. We want our lifestyles to go on the same way and still expect to be blessed. Well, that's not how it works. And Jesus is personally commending this martyr for his faith. Could you be in a bowl like that, a copper metal bowl, roasting to death and still keeping the faith. They are living on the doorstep of hell and he does not give them a ticket to get out of town. He expects them to one, endure and two, overcome. He didn't tell them to go move to Ephesus. He didn't tell them to go move to Laodicea. He expected them to stay put and get it together. And that's a message for us today. You know, there's a famous quote by a man named C.T. Studd, and it says, Someone to live within the sound of church or chapel bell. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. That should be our attitude. And then the letter says, But I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Within this church are believers that are embracing a corrupt and deceitful doctrine. 
and it's creating problems. It's creating stumbling blocks. And there is no room for problems like that in an environment like this. Let me tell you. Let me briefly summarize the point that Jesus is making because it comes from a story in the Old Testament. The children of Israel were about to enter the promised land, Canaan, and they were camped on the other side of where they had to cross, waiting to hear from God as to when they needed to cross over. In the meantime, Balak, the king of Moab, sat watching. He didn't want them to come into the land. He wanted to stop them. So he hired a soothsayer out of Syria named Balaam to intervene. And, it's, and he hired him, which means they gave him what's called a diviner's fee. Well, Balaam was known for his very accurate fortune telling. That's what a soothsayer is. If you've ever sought one out, I'm sure you've paid a hefty fee, a diviner's fee. You should stay away from that, by the way. Anyway, so he's known for his accuracy. If he blessed someone, they'd be blessed. If he cursed someone, they would be cursed. So the king of Moab hires him, brings him down, and wants him to pronounce curses over Israel so that they won't come into the territory. And he believes that if this man Balaam speaks it, it will come to pass. Do you see why Jesus identifies himself as the word now, as he with that two-edged sword? See, only his word is true and stands forever. Only his word can't be moved. Only his word will come to pass. You can see all this starting to go together. So God stepped into this situation and had Balaam say very different things than intended. So every time this Balaam would open his mouth to try to curse Israel, a blessing would come out instead. And it kept happening over and over and over again. And the king was getting angry. He didn't know what was happening. So he just kept throwing more gold at Balaam, thinking that the more riches he could throw at him, he could get it right. Well, finally, he realized that it wasn't working. Nothing was working. Balaam explained to him what was going on. So they came up with another idea. Why don't you go round up all the really nice looking pretty women of the area who can seduce the men of Israel? Then we'll really pull something on him. So they did and enticed the men of Israel with prostitutes and with idolatry. He could not pronounce a curse on them. So he came up with a plan to bring a curse upon themselves. And so they did and then sent the women into the camp and let them seduce the men of Israel. And the men fell for it and committed idolatry and immorality. And God was angry and became their enemy as a result. And he's saying that there are some within this church of Pergamon who are doing the exact same thing. They are holding to the teaching of Balaam. They are bringing a curse upon themselves by being deceived by sexual immorality and idolatry. They held fast to the name of Jesus. They would not renounce the name of Jesus, but they were being sexually immoral and idolatrous. It appears that culture was affecting them. And this again is no different today. The church today is struggling heavily with sexual immorality and the same internal sins as this church. And we think God does not see. So this church was in trouble, but not only that, he says that they held to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. We covered that a couple videos back. No one truly knows who the Nicolaitans were. It's all speculation. But what is assumed is that they were a group that misled the young churches through false teachings. 
And so God was calling them out for their sexual immorality and idolatry, but also the fact that they were basically embracing false prophets, false messengers, false doctrines, or perhaps the healing deceptions taking place in Asclepion. Either way, those patterns are still prevalent in the body of Christ today, and we need to start paying attention. So he says, repent immediately. Do it now. Do it quickly. Get it out. Change. Get this out of the church. There's a sense of urgency, as he says, or else I will come quickly. Get it out or the Lord himself will come to them. Let this be a warning for us in our churches today. The true gospel of Jesus Christ, the true balanced view of who he is, is not being preached. Today we are offering the world an unoffendable Jesus. We are embracing unbiblical doctrines that accept sin. Don't think this is something just affecting the Pergamon people at the time. It's here. Take a good look at what he is saying. Repent. Change. Repent means think differently in the Greek, and in the Hebrew it means turn and go the other way. Well, that's what we need to do in every church around the world. We need to examine ourselves, repent, get rid of all the impure, and turn ourselves back wholeheartedly to Jesus. He says, repent, otherwise I will come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. It's a warning. Is the sword going to come by a messenger, a strong prophetic message, a prophet, for example, for them to get it right? Jesus is sending a warning shot into the air. Deal with this or I'm going to come at you with the sword of my mouth. I'm going to call this out my way, which is going to cut. What was that going to look like? The church needed and still needs today to deal with their sin issue or God would deal with them. What a place to have a church. What love of the Lord to send people in to reach the people in this place, these lost souls. So the question is, did the church make it? And what about the altar of Zeus? Well, let me start with Zeus. The entire temple of Zeus has been moved. It was moved in the 19th century by German archaeologists. They literally dismantled it and moved it stone by stone. To guess where? East Berlin leaving only the base, which you can see when you travel there. And if you ever go to Berlin, go to what used to be East Berlin and go to a building called Pergamon Museum. The Temple of Zeus has been re-erected inside that museum. It is a huge building because it's a huge temple. It's overwhelming. Look it up. The steps leading up, the three sides, it's huge. Shaped like an armchair like a throne. And here it is, a visitor attraction in our lifetime. And it was Satan's seat. How interesting that that got moved in the early 19th century to Germany. Does this mean that Satan is residing in Berlin? Perhaps at one time, but he has since moved on. Where to? Well, now, isn't that a question to ponder? 
We don't know how long the church of Pergamon made it. The only church that we know made it of all the seven was Smyrna and Ephesus until at least the fourth century. But the rest of them, no. So here is Jesus saying, repent. He who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, only to the known, to the one who receives it. There's so much speculation on the manna and the white stone that no one quite knows all of what that means. We know that manna from heaven was their sustenance, their source. It was their refreshment to live by. We also know that there was hidden manna that was put into the Ark of the Covenant, right? But it's all a picture of Jesus, and so maybe that's the refreshment. I'll give you refreshment. I'll help you make it. I'll be your bread. I'll be your sustenance. But then there's the white stone, and nobody really knows what that means. But it's something with a new name written or with a name written on it that's personal. And these are just things to ponder. We're never going to quite know the full meaning of that until he reveals it. But one thing we can definitely gather from this. God called the church of Smyrna to suffering. And God is calling the church of Pergamon to separation. He does not want the outside world to infiltrate and affect the inner workings of this church here. So he is giving them in this letter a strong exhortation. Separate yourself from this. Come out from among them. And let that be a message for us today. I honestly believe that if the body of Christ begins to follow what these letters are doing and we choose to change and do church differently, we just might experience an awakening like no other. But it starts with us. So I pray this blesses you today. Thank you for joining me on this uh, episode of the Letter to the Church in Pergamon. And keep in mind, my friends, these are real places with real people facing real situations. Until next time, take care. Thank you.